relying upon God for His help and blessing this evening. Let's turn Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, verse 25 through chapter 3 and verse 4. Romans chapter 2, verse 25, reading through chapter 3, verse 4. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. With God's help, let's turn our attention to the passage that we just read, focusing on verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And again, verse 20, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. This morning we considered the profit and the value of circumcision. Paul, of course, in Romans chapter 2, is refuting the false doctrine of justification by works that was being proclaimed by the Jews of his day, the unconverted Jews in the synagogue, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were saying that our right standing with God is grounded in our works, moral works, your written code, ceremonial works, your written code, and circumcision. We saw that from Acts chapter 15. We saw Earlier in this chapter, in previous sermons, that Paul addresses this false teaching in a number of different ways. Earlier in the chapter, he brings to bear the perfect standard of God's law to show that the soul who is self-seeking and does not obey the truth, verse 8, but obeys unrighteousness, will find judgment from God. The soul who sins shall die. The standard is perfection. We saw it from Galatians 3, verse 10. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything that's written in the law of God. Paul brings that perfect standard to bear, showing that even the godliest saint on the face of the earth, with all of his or her sanctified obedience, could never gain a right standing with God in and through that obedience of sanctification. But rather... Our right standing with God is based upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to the believer received by faith alone. So he says, even your best works, even if you were the most godly person in the world, you still couldn't be right with God based upon that sanctified obedience. But then he proceeds in verses 17-24, through again as we saw in a previous couple of sermons, 
to expose their hypocritical, disobedient lifestyle. That in fact, the Jews, far from being just shy of the glory of God, uh, were in the pit of wickedness and hypocrisy. They had bold claims. They fancied themselves superior to the Gentiles with all of their perversion and wickedness. But the Jews themselves were filled with hypocritical disobedience. They fell not just short, but woefully short, not only of the perfect standard for justification, but their lives did not even meet the imperfect standard of what we might call the sanctified Christian life. In other words, they're not just not justified, but they're unconverted. They're not even born again. Uh, and and we, we considered that uh, previously. Then this morning we saw that Paul now begins to address the ceremonial aspect of this doctrine of salvation by works. He addresses their foolish confidence in circumcision. And he asserts that their disobedient hypocritical lifestyle, professing one thing with their lips, denying it with their choices, he says that disobedient lifestyle negates any positive benefit whatsoever from circumcision. Why? Because circumcision is a mark in the Old Testament of God's covenant of grace. God's covenant of grace by which He justifies sinners and by which He sanctifies them and enables them to cut off and cast away their sin. And we considered that to a great extent this morning, the spiritual imagery and significance of circumcision. Paul says circumcision is profitable if it raises your awareness to the oracles of God that have now been entrusted to you so that in grateful obedience, you obey those oracles. You believe those oracles. You receive the Word of God. You believe it and you keep it. But the Jews weren't doing that. And so they didn't receive any benefit from the Word of God, the oracles of God, or from this gracious sign and seal of circumcision, which we saw involved the shedding of blood, pointing to the death of Christ. It was on the eighth day, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ arising on the first day of the week. The eighth day is the first day of the subsequent week. So it points to Christ's resurrection and His death. It's the male foreskin, therefore pointing to original sin and the propagation of sin, which forms the background of the need for the shedding of blood, for the death of Christ and for the resurrection of Christ. And as I said, it has this violent imagery of killing sin, cutting it away, casting it from us as an unclean thing. And so, Paul is saying here that circumcision is extremely valuable if it points you to God's Word, to believe it and to obey it. But apart from that, it's not only without benefit, But there's actually greater judgment for having received this advantage. Verse 1 of chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. So by having this sign of the covenant, the Jews had the Gospel front and center. The, The Jews had the Gospel presented to them through this ordinance. Justification, sanctification, regeneration, all of these things. Mortification of sin. And by not believing and obeying these oracles, they found greater judgment. And we considered the danger of recognizing the, the, the connection between baptism and circumcision. We recognize the danger in the church today of people having received the outward sign. Circumcision cutting away, baptism cleansing away, very similar imagery here, speaking of the new birth and Christian sanctification, we can receive the sign. But it's like if you put a sign for a security system outside of your house, but you don't actually, you're not actually a subscriber to the security system, it, it may fend off uh, potential uh, robbers from your home, but if they do come, it's not going to help you at all. Uh, you know, when it really comes down to it, just having the sign isn't enough. And it's not going to help you in the day of judgment to have received the sign. Old covenant circumcision, new covenant baptism. Apart from the things signified, uh, the new birth, the forgiveness of sins, a life of obedience and holiness. 
So thus far we considered that this morning. But this evening our focus is upon practical applications for believers. This morning was, was more so an evangelistic message. This evening more so geared toward the believer. What do we make of this ordinance of circumcision which continues and is signified in a very similar way in Christian baptism, but what do we make of it? This message that God proclaims from this passage that we ought to identify sin, we ought to cut it off, we ought to cut it out, and if we don't, we'll be cut down. John the Baptist says the axe is laid at the the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear fruit, he will cut down and cast into the fire. Yes, but how does that apply to me as a believer? How does it apply to you as a child of God? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 famously that we ought to be willing to cut off our right hand, pluck out our right eye, lest our entire body and soul be cast into hell fire. Yes, but what does that say to you as a child of God, as a believer? Well, circumcision, of course, as we said countless times this morning, is a gracious ordinance. Even as baptism points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, circumcision as well. Isaiah 53.8 tells us that Christ was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of My people. He was stricken. So when we think of circumcision, when we think of the imagery, when we think of being cut off, we think of Christ. We think of what He's done for us. That on the cross, He took all of our sin. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. All of our sin was placed upon the sinless Son of God on the cross and He was cut off from the land of the living. Now we tend to think of this oftentimes, we think of it in terms of our justification. Christ was punished, I deserve to be cut off, and therefore uh, He took the punishment for me so I won't go to hell. Well, that's true. But the biblical Gospel says that on the cross, when Jesus was cut off, far more than just our legal guilt being taken away, far more than that took place in that great exchange. That did happen, but more than that took place on the cross of Calvary. When Christ was cut off on the cross, it not only uh, took away the guilt of our sin, but the Bible is explicit, especially in the book of Romans. Paul says that in fact, our flesh, the influential power and dominion of sin was cut off at the cross. The dominion of sin over the believer, which is the, the fruit of the guilt of Adam's sin. Adam sinned and as a punishment, he and all mankind were given over to sin, sinfulness. And so Christ on the cross takes away the guilt but He also liberates us from the bondage that flowed from that guilt. And when He was cut off on the cross, uh, our flesh was cut off. The dominion of sin was cut off. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with. Remember, He's crying out in chapter 7, Who will deliver me from this body of death? This body of sin. But here we're told that on the cross, not only the guilt of our sin was satisfied through the punishment, but also our old man. Our old nature. The lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh. The pride of life. Was crucified with Him. That the body of sin may be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Death is the ultimate separation. Death is the ultimate cutting off. Body and soul separated at death. When it says that the believer becomes dead to sin, when it says that the old man was crucified and put to death in Christ on the cross, What it is saying is that fundamentally for every Christian at the cross, applied at regeneration and throughout the believer's life, is this 
Cutting off of sin. It's cutting off of sin. Cutting off of the flesh. Definitively, Christ has defeated it. Christ has utterly destroyed the dominion of sin. That's why it's called our old man. It's not the current man, not the new man. It's it's the old man. It's the old humanity. Behold, the new has come. And we're told, verse 10, for the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also, listen to this, reckon yourselves. That word reckon is the same word for imputation. The same word that's used when it speaks of God imputing righteousness to Abraham by faith. Romans 4 uses that word. This word, reckon. Not only are we to receive the reckoning of Christ's righteousness to our account in our justification, but we need to gird up the loins of our mind as believers and reckon ourselves. We need to take every thought captive. We need to have a renewed mind. We need to be perceiving who we are as born-again believers. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. That means you need to look at the cross of Christ not only as Him taking your punishment, but Him as decisively removing the dominion of sin over your life. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So if sin is reigning, if I'm living a disobedient, backslidden Christian life, that's because I'm not reckoning the cross as having done what the Bible says the cross has done. If I'm living a backslidden Christian life, that means that I'm letting sin. See, that the unbeliever is not letting sin reign. The unbeliever is under the dominion of sin. Uh, they're totally depraved. They're dead and blind in sin. But we as believers, if we give the devil a foothold, if we fail to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, we're giving him a foothold. We're allowing sin to reign in our mortal body that we should obey it in its lusts. He says, don't let it happen. You have to grab hold of this truth. Not just the truth of justification, but the truth of sanctification. The truth of Christ being, as it were, circumcised on the cross. As it were, having sin in the flesh on Christ being cut off definitively the dominion of sin. Cut off and cast away. He says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Now, a true believer may feel sold under sin as Paul did in chapter 7. And sometimes we're given over to backsliding in our lives. But the fact of the matter is, we're letting it happen. We're presenting our members. We're making a choice. We're voluntarily giving ourselves over to this servitude of the flesh. We're failing to reckon what is true according to the Word of God in our lives. He says, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Listen, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Dear believer, that is a promise to you. If you are a true Christian, if you're trusting in Christ and not in the flesh, all you have is Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's perfect obedience. That's all you've got. That's all the hope that you're ever going to have. And and that's you, then it's saying of you, fear not in your battle against sin. Sin doesn't say shouldn't have dominion, but if it does, it's your fault. It says, for sin shall not have dominion over you. In other words, there may be backsliding, but God will bring you out of it. Christ living in and through you is more than capable of restoring you. Sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. And I would submit to you that the most effective lie of the devil in keeping Christians in a depressed and backslidden state, in in a discouraged and disobedient lifestyle, is this. That he just expunges. Verse 14 from our Bibles. For sin shall not have dominion over you. 
the bondage that the believer, if we can call it that, the bondage that the believer experiences in a backslidden condition is largely on account of the fact that the believer is not reckoning himself or herself as dead to sin. The believer has not memorized this verse and is not reciting it and being encouraged by it. Sin shall not have dominion over me. I am not under the law. Christ has satisfied the law on my behalf. And when God said, you eat of the fruit, dying you shall die, and He cursed mankind with total depravity and spiritual death and transgression and sins, dominion under sin as a judicial punishment for sin, I'm not under that anymore. I'm not under the law anymore. I'm not under its condemnation. My crimes have been pardoned and expunged and I'm let out of prison. And I'm not going to live in that prison because I've got my pardon right here from the governor's office. Jesus Christ has satisfied for me the law of God. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. I'm under grace. My sins are forgiven and now the grace of God enables me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And I can work it out not just optimistically, That word optimism, it it can be a cop-out sometimes. It's not optimism, it's faith. It's faith. It's saying, sin shall not have dominion. That's not being overconfident like Peter saying, oh Lord, I'll suffer and die for you. And of course he trusted in himself and failed miserably and denied the Lord three times. That's not what we're talking about here. We're saying believing the promise of God to sanctify the believer that Christ definitively has cut off and cast away the dominion of sin. And yes, we face sin remaining in our bodies, remaining in our souls, remaining sin, but it's not a domineering sin. It's not a dominating sin. It's been cut off from any claim to the throne of our lives. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And in chapter 7 of Romans, in the opening verses, the Apostle Paul speaks of what it means to be under the law. It's like a marriage. And he says you can't get out of the marriage unless unless the spouse that you're married to dies. And in Christ, through His death on the cross, there's there's been a death. Uh, Verse 2, "...for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives." But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Now, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, using this analogy, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. That marriage to the law is over. You're now married to Jesus Christ. You're dead to the law through the body of Christ, which was crucified, that you may be married to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. In other words, Jesus died on the cross, not just to take your punishment, but to make you a fruitful, sanctified, obedient Christian. He was raised from the dead. He came alive by the power of God so that you can come alive by the power of God. Death couldn't hold Him. And that body of sin and death can't hold you back from obeying God to the glory of Jesus Christ. He goes on in chapter 8, verse 5, this theme that continues. He says, "...for those who live according to the flesh..." set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now he goes on, verse 9, but you, speaking to believers, again, that's our theme this evening, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, if you're a Christian and the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, then understand, reckon it to be the case that you are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, so he's back to this assumption here. Again, you're a Christian, 
You're assured of that salvation that Christ has purchased for you. Listen, if Christ is in you, verse 10, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. I mean, we could go on and on. We'll get there, God willing, in in this uh, series on Romans. But the point here is, through the cross of Christ, through the death of Christ, sin in the flesh has been condemned, it has been cut off, it has been defanged, it has been neutralized in terms of any power to dominate your life. Doesn't mean Christians don't fall into sin. We fall into the mud puddle, but we're not diving in and wallowing in it. And if we are, like David in Psalm 32, the, the, the heat of summer is drying up our bones and in our conscience the Spirit is grieving us and giving us a, a sense that we need to repent and eventually we're reclaimed. But, but we're, we're freed from that dominion of sin. And Paul connects this to circumcision. Colossians 2 verse 11 Uh, This uh, set of verses is often at the center of controversy between Presbyterians and Baptists and this uh, relationship between circumcision in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant. But here, we're focusing more directly on the specific point that Paul is making, though we recognize that connection. Uh, We're told, in Him, in Christ... You, again, speaking to you as a believer. This is not primarily an evangelistic sermon, although every sermon is evangelistic. But but listen, as a believer, in Him you were also circumcised. These are Gentiles in Colossae, but he says spiritually, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, reputable scholars on both sides debate whether this is saying that the work of regeneration that sets us free from sin is here being called the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision which Christ performs by the Holy Spirit to bring us from death to life to cut off the flesh, and to bring us into this state of being a new creature. Uh, And so we've been born again. We've been regenerated. And that in itself, they would say, is the circumcision performed by Christ. The Christian circumcision, the new birth, which corresponds to what circumcision was pointing to. Other scholars would say that uh, we were liberated from sin, uh, the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ in the sense of Christ being cut off on the cross. That this is an explicit reference to the death of Christ. It was His cutting off. It was His circumcision as it were. And it marks the circumcision of the heart of every believer as that is applied in regeneration. Well, either way you take it. The significance here is that every true Christian is born again. Every true Christian has had the flesh cut off through the death of Christ and has received the circumcision made without hands. The dominion of sin is cut off and cast away. And then it says buried with Him in baptism. Again, saying that this cutting off, cutting away and cleansing away for the Apostle Paul, it's all one and the same essentially. It's all one and the same. The imagery of baptism and circumcision are so closely knit together here. Uh, We've received this circumcision made without hands, being buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And so beyond all the debates, let's look at the practical point that I think is, is undebatable. Verse 13, And you, now remember Romans 2, we said that Paul uses this very important word you dozens of times, countless times. He hardly uses it at all in chapter 1. I don't even know if he does use it at all in the section of dealing with the Gentiles. 
Uh, but here in chapter 2, he's saying you. But, but notice here, he's saying you. He's speaking to you. Take it from the mouth of the apostle as a word to your soul, dear believer. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. What a beautiful word, all. All. If you're a believer in Christ, He was cut off not just for your worst sins, not just for a certain subset of the sins that you've committed against Almighty God, not just the sins prior to your baptism. He has been cut off. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And He's forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out, expunged the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He wiped out all the guilt of our sin. He wiped out all the ceremonial laws that separated the Jews and Gentiles. So many ways to take this. But, but he's just, Paul is just clause after clause, lumping all these things together. And he says, which, uh, and he has taken it out of the way. He has taken it out of the way. Dear believer, this, this evening you may feel that in your Christian life there's a hindrance. There's something blocking your path to heaven. There's a sin that is a stumbling block and you just can't get past it. There's guilt, there's affliction, there's discouragement, there's a relationship breakdown and it's, it's just right there in the middle of the road and you can't go under it. You can't go over it. You can't go around it. But we're told here that in this Christian life, in Christ, He has taken it out of the way. There's nothing that prevents you from walking, putting one foot in front of the other and facing the affliction, the guilt, the pain, the relationship, trauma, whatever it is, you can do it. He takes these things out of the way and all of our guilt, all of our sin has been nailed to the cross. He's taken it out of the way. Having disarmed principalities and powers, you say, well, Satan's still out to get me. Now, we just had a brother that was baptized last week. And I said, how was your week? Because I said, after Jesus' baptism, uh, he was taken into the wilderness of temptation. And, uh, and, and we can feel that way. We can say, well, I've, I've professed my faith. I've put my trust in Christ. And oh boy, now I'm in for it. The devil has me right in the crosshairs. Uh, but, but Jesus not only had our sin nailed to the cross, He not only takes out these things in our way, but He's disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. This is talking about Satan and the demons. He publicly shamed them. He publicly defeated them. He publicly triumphed over them. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in that cross. My friends, as believers, we need to hear this. We need to reckon these things to be so. Satan will take hold of our lives through temptations to doubt that these things are so. To doubt that there's, that there's something we can do to overcome sin. You have an issue in your life, maybe something in your Christian life that you're neglecting. And you say, well, I want to I be more consistent in my Christian life in this area or in that area. But I keep spinning my wheels. Well, I guess that's just the way it's going to be. And I guess uh, I'll have to be satisfied with a mediocre Christian life. Somebody else in their Christian life has a besetting sin, a lust, uh, something that entangles them, something that diverts them from the Lord and from what God's called them to do, something that weighs upon their conscience, something they feel like, well, the world's telling me this is who I am. The world's telling me this is my identity. You'd better, you'd better just get used to it. This is your identity. This is who you are. Jesus Christ says nonsense. That identity has been circumcised. It's been cut off. It's been cut away. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. There's your identity in Christ. And we need to reckon these things to be so. Some of us have been delivered from these life-dominating sins in our unconverted 
lives. And we've been brought into the kingdom of God. And we need to be constantly remembering what God has done for us. Uh, Setting up our Ebenezer, as it were, our stone of help. The Lord has helped us thus far. He delivered me from the lion. He delivered me from the bear. He's going to deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. There's nothing that you need to fear in your Christian life. Nothing for which the grace purchased at the cross is inadequate. Paul says it best, Philippians 3.3, We are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. And so that temptation rears its ugly head. Cut it off. Cast it away. That's who you are. It's not just something Christ has done for you. That's who you are. You're the circumcision. You're not who you once were. You've been washed. You've been bought with the blood of Christ. You are not your own. You are the circumcision. And my friends, as we look at uh, Romans chapters 2 and 3, We can't help but just reflect on a couple of things. First of all, the oracles of God. Circumcision was a sign and seal which drew God's people's attention to His Word. And that's what the sacraments do. I mean, baptism in itself, I mean, what, what, what's, it's, it's, it's insignificant. It's utterly meaningless unless it's pointing us to the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit and of the blood of Christ. The Lord's Supper in itself, if we just recited it in Latin and distributed it, it's meaningless. Unless we have the Word of God to explain it. And unless those sacraments are a sign and a seal, uh, an authenticating pledge of the veracity of that Word. And so the oracles of God, they've been committed to us, no less than to the Jews. They've been entrusted to us. And that's an advantage. Jeremiah 6.10 warns of the danger of having uncircumcised ears. Uncircumcised ears. What are we doing with these oracles? Are we listening to them? Uh, Have our ears been dug out, Psalm 40, so that we can hear and do the will of God revealed in Scripture? Do we have circumcised ears? Jeremiah says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. It's so important the end of that verse because if it just said the word of God is a reproach to them, how many of us as believers would find that to be convicting. Probably very few of us. Because we'd say, well, it's not a reproach. I don't hate the Word of God. Now, we could talk about ways in which, perhaps in principle, we're guilty of that. But, but okay, you might say, well, it's not a reproach to me. So this isn't speaking of me. I don't have uncircumcised ears in any sense. Ah, but he says, they have no delight in it. They have no delight in it. It's as Job says, it's like the taste of the white of an egg. It's just tasteless. How many of us can relate to that? Probably more of us than would say that we take, uh, find the Word of God to be a reproach. D- do you delight in the Word of God? When you sing the Psalms and it says the Word of God is more valuable than much fine gold and it tastes sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. And you say, God's entrusted me with these oracles. And this is what the psalmist under inspiration is saying of them. Don't you often find yourself falling far short of that? Not only not taking delight in God's Word, but perhaps taking so little delight in it that you're delighting in other things and those other things come in and the weeds in your life choke out the Word of God and you hardly have any time for it. Because how do you know if you delight in something? Are you doing it? If it's a delightful activity, you're going to be doing it. And things that we don't find delightful, we tend to push to the periphery of our lives. Job 23 verse 12 Listen to what Job says, and Job has his problems, but he was essentially the godliest man on earth at that time. This is a godly believer with very little of the oracles of God. Uh, Who knows how much he had, if anything, of the written word of God. 
But Job 23.12, I have not departed from the commandments of His lips. I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. So for Job here, it's not merely a matter of taking delight in it, but the necessity of it. We need food. Uh, It's not just that food is to be delightful. Yes, that is the case. Honey from the honeycomb. But the Word is His meat and His drink. He recognizes apart from it, I'm going to be malnourished. Uh, I, I could die of hunger or thirst. I need the Word of God more than my necessary food. It's more necessary than my food, in other words. Do we understand how necessary the Word of God is? That we must live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Do we seek that word with a sense of utter dependency and eagerness? There are people in the world today that all they have is a page of the Bible. Or perhaps they have a New Testament or they have the Gospel of John or they have some segment or portion of the written Word of God and they treasure it. And I have no doubt they can be they can be backsliding and take that for granted, but, but just hang with the illustration. Uh, are you taking for granted that you have the entire Bible, all 66 books? Are you taking for granted the fact that you have it, as some, some would say, some would be very dogmatic, that I've got the best translation out there, and they've got all these reasons for why they have the best translation of a book that they rarely read. The oracles of God have been entrusted to you. Proverbs 2, listen, verse 1, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, see the urgency, crying out, what would you cry out for? To, to what extent would you have to be in need to the point where you would be literally raising your voice and crying out for help, for food, for whatever? That is the urgency that we as believers ought to have. And by the grace of God as newborn infants desiring the pure milk of the Word, that urgency of a little infant, we ought to have that. And by God's grace, we can have that. And to the extent that we don't have that, we need to ask God to produce that in us. We have not because we ask not. And at the very least, we can say, well, I don't have it. I need to confess that as a sin. That's a starting point. That's step one. But we cannot be content with the Word of God tasting like the white of an egg and being on the periphery and on the sidelines of our lives. We just can't do it. Verse 4, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. Do you spend your time seeking to gain a profit? Do you spend a lot of time each week working so that you can have income to put food on the table do you put time and energy into your investments into various things that might bring a return on that investment if you seek her as silver Solomon knew a lot about wealth and investing but he says you ought to view the word of God as your greatest investment seek it run to it cry out for it he says and search for her as hidden treasures then then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So what is that telling me if I'm not doing that regularly? If I'm not in any sense burdened about it and I'm not taking action to be a faithful steward of the oracles of God, what's it telling me? That I'm missing out on what comes after the word then. Think about this. I mean, it's just common sense. He says, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then... See that? So if, if you or I are not doing that, we're missing out on what comes after the word then. Do you want to miss out on what comes after the word then? Does any true Christian want to miss out on what comes after the word then? Then you will understand the fear 
of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. Not saying it's just the beginning, but in a sense, it's, it's phase one of the Christian life. Reading the Bible regularly. Reading it, not just reading it, just uh, uh, studying it. Meditating on it, thinking about it. That's a lifelong process. But if we're not doing that, then we're not understanding the fear of the Lord. Think about how that would affect your Christian life. Because I know what the devil's going to do. He's going to say, well, what does it matter? You know, you read your Bible once a week or once a day. What's the difference? Well, it's a big difference. Are you fearing God? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling at the presence of God? Do you feel that God is not manifesting His presence in your life? Well, it could be that it's because you're not in His Bible. You're not seeking for this as silver, the oracles of God. It says, then you will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth come knowledge. I mean, we could go on, we just read through the book of Proverbs till we're all blue in the face, but you get the point. The oracles of God. We need to learn to fear the Lord. And the king in Israel was to write out a copy of the law and read it every day. Why do you think that was? Well, it was because he needed the law of God, as it says there, to learn to fear the Lord. You say, I'm not a king of Israel, so maybe I can get away with reading the Bible a couple times a week. No. Christ has called you to be faithful in whatever calling that He's placed you in, and you need to learn to fear the Lord. How are you going to work out your salvation with fear and trembling if you're not learning to fear the Lord? How are you going to learn to fear the Lord if you're not reading the Bible every day, which is a prerequisite to learning to fear the Lord? You see, it's plain and simple. Uh, And uh, so much more we could say here about killing sin, about... Uh, the praise of men versus the praise of God. But I'm going to tie up uh, just one more loose end with the oracles of God and and, uh, we'll call it quits for the sermon. Uh, Hebrews 5. I just want to draw your attention to this and then then we'll bring it to a close. Hebrews chapter 5. And these are hard words. These are not pleasant words. But uh, the peaceable fruit of righteousness is pleasant. And so we're desiring to see these words bear fruit. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, He says, uh, concerning Christ as the priest in the order of Melchizedek, uh, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. At least he's honest there about that. It can be hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. Since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Uh, And he goes on about exercising our senses to discern good and evil. More could be said. I'm trying to wrap this up. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying we have a lot to say, and you have a lot in your Christian life that God's calling you to do. From this step to the next step to the next step, and the, the good and the prosperity of God's church depends upon everybody passing ninth grade to get to 10th grade, to 11th grade, to 12th grade, to graduate. God's church depends upon everybody continuing in the school of Christ and taking that next step in due course and rising up eventually to serve in God's kingdom in church offices and other uh, valuable service opportunities. Um, God, in His providence, has set it up that way. And Paul is looking at the Hebrew Christians and he's saying, by this time, you ought to be in 10th grade. You're in 8th grade. You're in 9th grade. You you ought to be here, but you're here. And and, and it's not mean-spirited. He loves these people. He says that their labor of love is a sweet aroma in the presence of God. He, he, he loves these people, but he's saying you need to advance, you need to keep working, you need to keep laboring and maturing and growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. You need to take that next step. And for everybody here, as I'm looking at different faces, it's a different step, it's a different place and calling and 
and, and, and we could get into details, but I can tell you it's literally everybody. You need to take that step. And, and if you get to the point where you ought to be here and you're not, the body of Christ is going to suffer for that. I'm not bitter about that. It's God's providence. But the body of Christ is going to suffer. If you need to profess your faith and join as a communicant member and you don't, we're going to suffer for that. If you need to become a deacon or an elder or go into the mission field and you're not taking these steps and maturing in your prayer life, in your Bible reading, in every aspect that's necessary, if you're not passing that grade and going on to the next one, the body of Christ is going to suffer. And we need to take this seriously. We have the oracles of God. Are we hearing them? Are we discerning what God's called us to do? And are we zealously being about the work of our Heavenly Father? If we're not, this church is going to suffer. Now, I am not saying, and this last thing I'm going to say, I'm not saying that let's say there's a church office and you're saying, I can't do that because because of what God has called me to do right now. That's not what I'm concerned about. But if you can't rise to that next step, not because you are doing what God's called you to do, but because you're not doing it, that's the concern. That's the concern. We need to be growing, we need to be disciplined, and we need to get to the next step in response to the oracles of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your Holy Spirit who has applied to us this spiritual circumcision which was accomplished at the cross. We pray that you would enable us to cut off and cast away every sin and every weight that hinders. We pray that you would enable us to seek and destroy the sins, the stumbling blocks, the hindrances. And that we would walk in your ways and be good stewards of those oracles of God which are of great advantage and of great profit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.